we pray this morning that you'd open up our hearts and our minds to hear what you had to say to us through your word. I pray that you would speak through me, Lord, in spite of my weakness and my brokenness and my frailty and all that I don't know. But I pray that you'd help us to zero in on your word and that you'd help us to hear your voice in what we talk about in these next few minutes. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Growing up, I only had one granddad. My dad's father died before I was born. So Pop Pop was it. This was my mom's father. And he lived in a little town in West Virginia, Romney, which is about two hours west of here. In retirement, he had a used car lot. And it was cool because I got to test drive, in my imagination, every car on the lot. He would let me get in, you know, and get behind the wheel and not go anywhere. He never gave me the keys. But it was a lot of fun. And I can remember he liked Cadillacs, and he also liked to drive fairly fast. And this was in the days when a five- or six-year-old kid could stand on the transmission tunnel in the back seat of a 63 Cadillac and, like, put their arms over the seat and look at the speedometer while his grandma was sleeping. <laughs> and, and Grandpa would like, yeah, let's see how fast this baby will go. So he was a lot of fun. I remember, and my kids even know this, they never met him because he died long before they were born. But my kids know that he had this really distinctive laugh. In World War I, he was wounded, and he lost a lung. And it could have been that. It could have been the cigar smoking. It could have been his weight. But when he laughed, he would just go, <laughs> I was like, are you okay? Are you, you know, do we need to like, give him mouth to mouth or something? You know? <laughs> he was a great guy. Loved him so much. But by the summer of 1972, it was clear, even to a 10-year-old me, that the, the trips to the doctor and the intermittent trips to the hospital were pointing to something that was not good. And so in June of 72, he was in the hospital over in Winchester, dying of cancer. And my mom explained that to me. And I would go visit him, and he was in pain. They couldn't do a whole lot for him. But what struck me was the fact that he wasn't worried about dying. He knew exactly where he was going to be. Uh, he came to Christ in his late 50s. So, you know, he didn't live his whole life walking with Jesus. But in the 20 or so years that he had known the Lord, he just was really solid in his faith. So he died on July 1st, 1972. That was a Thursday. And I was going to vacation Bible school at night at their little church. It had to be at night because that was the only time people were available, you know, to volunteer and help out. Everybody had to work in the daytime. And on that day, that afternoon, just kind of thinking about his loss, where he would be, all of the Bible lessons I learned growing up in church, all the stuff that we had talked about, it finally began to make sense, and it dawned on me that I needed to do something with that knowledge, that it wasn't enough just to know the stories, to know the ideas and know where to find stuff in the Bible. I needed to make a decision about that for me personally. And so... That night, a guy who was a school teacher at the time, he's retired now, his name was Gary Wagoner, led me in a little prayer. And I asked Jesus to be the leader and forgiver in my life. For me, this, the Jungle Safari Clubs we're getting ready to do next two weeks, and these are huge. So I think they're kids that could be grown up in our church, and they know a lot about Jesus because their families have grown up. But maybe they've never gotten to the point where They've made their own decision. And for me, 
I think you know, it was really tough losing my grandfather, watching my grandmother as a widow, and seeing you know, what her life was like after that. So it was a, a bad experience. You know, it was hard to lose him. And yet, in all of that, God used his death to bring me life. So it wasn't a good thing, but God used it for good. And there's a verse that many of you know from Romans chapter 8. Verse 28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So it's not that everything that happens is good. It's not that at all. It was bad that he died, but if we belong to Jesus, and we know him, and we trust him, and we let him work in us, he can use even the hard things in our life for good. And that's been my experience. It's also very much a part of the experience in the early church. So we're going to dig into a couple of chapters from Acts, starting kind of with chapter 8, run through 11. If you've got a Bible with you, you have the Bible app on your phone, you can pull that up. And two realities about hardship that we're going to see over and over again in Scripture, but especially in these passages. First of all, God would say through the Bible, hardship is, man, that's just part of life. It will come and find you. It will hunt you down. We live in a broken world. So don't be surprised when you encounter hardship or obstacles or opposition. And there may come a time when the opposition that you experience is directly related to the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. But then the second reality is that no matter what you're up against, no matter the hardship, no matter the opposition, God can bring good out of that. And so this morning we're going to talk about growth in spite of opposition. Up until this point in the book of Acts, we've seen growth and it's been awesome. But the the reaction of the people, generally speaking, outside of the early church, just uh, normal people living in Jerusalem, they hear about, wow, this is awesome. There's cool stuff I hear happening among those Jesus followers. People are getting healed and people are becoming whole and they're doing all kinds of good things, taking care of poor people and widows like It sounds really awesome. I mean, it's not for me, but, you know, good for them. Awesome. And a couple of weeks ago, I read you several passages where it talked about how everybody around was just going, wow, that's really cool. Well, that's awesome. I hope that keeps going. That sounds great. So even outsiders had this positive opinion of them, but now, starting kind of where Dean left off last week with Stephen, who was killed because of his faith, there's this tipping point, a turning point. And now the people are reacting less positively. So this morning, we're going to talk about growth in spite of opposition. So covering a lot of ground, three major characters, Philip, Saul, who would later change his name to Paul, and Peter. And in each of these three storylines, you're going to see four recurrent principles that are going to come up. So the first one is that no one is beyond the reach of grace. The second one is that God uses real people all the time. I mean, he's, just, he's not looking for Bible superheroes. He's looking for real people. The third truth that we're going to see again and again in these passages is that faith plus obedience equals blessing. Faith is great. It's really important. But faith by itself, you know, James told us last summer, that's kind of worthless if it doesn't show up in the way you live. So faith plus obedience is what leads to blessing. And then the last thing is growth comes in spite of opposition. When we know Christ, growth can come in spite of opposition. So I want to read this passage. I'm going to ask you to read along with me. This is from the early part of chapter 8. Let's read it together, and it'll be right up here on the screen. So Saul, uh, let's read it all out loud, sorry. 
And Saul was there giving approval to his death. He's talking about Stephen. All right? On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So, Stephen's death here is kind of like the turning point, and, and the, the tide turns, and it kind of like now people are fired up. And the Jewish religious leaders are no longer willing to take a wait-and-see attitude and see if this whole Christianity business dies out. They're determined to stamp out this heretical group that follows the dead rabbi Jesus. And among them, leading the charge, is a promising young Pharisee named Saul. And Saul, is, he's on what he believes is a mission for God, you know, trying to get rid of these heretics who are stirring things up and causing problems for the one true God and his followers. Everybody scatters to avoid this persecution except for the apostles. Somebody needs to stay there and lead the early church. And it's a decision that will later cost some of them their very lives. And so the Christians in Jerusalem, they end up spreading out into Judea, which is the wider area in which they live, and then even beyond that into Samaria. It'd be a little bit like saying Christians from Dulles South were scattered all over northern Virginia and even to Delaware and Maryland and you know, West Virginia, you know, a, a little bit farther out. And so the word that Luke uses here for scattered is a really interesting term. It's an agricultural term that's used to talk about scattering seed. And it's almost like the, the Pharisees are like a bunch of guys who see dandelions growing in the yard, and they think, we don't want weeds growing, so we're going to just kick these things and destroy them. And the little seeds start floating around, and as they land, they begin to bear more weeds or more Christians. And so the word is scattered, and it bears fruit. So let's take a quick look, first of all, at Philip. We've heard about him before, two weeks ago, in chapter 6, when there's a problem in the early church, not all of the widows are getting taken care of, and so the leaders decide, hey, why don't you guys pick seven men among you who are really committed to the Lord, they're full of the Holy Spirit, and they will help us with this kind of food ministry so we can focus on teaching and preaching and prayer. And Philip is one of the men out of those seven. He wasn't one of the 12 apostles. He wasn't there every step of the way with Jesus. He was just an ordinary, everyday Christ follower, living out his commitment to Jesus, and when he was asked to serve, he did that faithfully. I'm really glad that there are people here at Gateway that kind of bring that same approach. You know, just normal people, but who are committed to living out their faith. So Philip, because of this scattering of the disciples, he goes to Samaria, which was a place that most good Jews would try to avoid. Samaria was formed out of the ten northern tribes of Israel. So like 700 years before Jesus is on the scene, the Assyrians come in and they capture the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And as was their custom, they bring in people from other parts of the world and they ship out some of the people that live there and they want everybody to kind of intermix and adopt Assyrian values. So as far as the Jews were concerned, these Samaritans were like spiritual mongrels. I mean, they were like the worst kind of half-breed you know, they were like mutts. They part Jewish, part Assyrian, part a little bit of this, part a little bit of that. Whereas the Jews consider themselves like we're purebred, God's chosen holy people. And anybody else is, you know, not worth hanging out with. So they tried to avoid Samaritans at all costs. Philip doesn't. He goes 
And he, he starts preaching all throughout Samaria, telling people about who Jesus is. And even though he's not one of the 12 apostles, he starts doing miracles. Same kind of stuff Peter's doing. People are getting healed. Demons are being cast out. This is just fantastic stuff that defies explanation. It's miraculous. And people in these villages begin to turn their lives over to Jesus. Well, once the word gets back to the 12 apostles in Jerusalem, what? Samaritans? Like who said anybody could go tell them about Jesus? They're not worthy of this stuff. So they send Peter and John over to Samaria to check out what's going on. It's like, seriously, you know, you've got to talk to Philip. He's breaking the rules here. Well, they go and find that these Samaritans know Jesus. And Peter and John pray over them, and they receive the Holy Spirit just like the Jews did in Acts chapter 2. Crazy thing. So Peter and John head back to Jerusalem. They stop at every opportunity preaching in all these little Samaritan towns about Jesus. And in the meantime, Philip has this amazing encounter with a government official from Ethiopia. And the way that he runs into this Ethiopian guy is an angel of the Lord speaks to him and says, hey, you need to go on the road that heads south to Gaza. So I just want you to get on the road and go. And Philip's like, okay. He doesn't have any more information than that, but he's willing to jump in and obey quickly. And along the way, he meets basically the treasury secretary of Ethiopia. This is a man who's riding along in his chariot. This is not modern-day Ethiopia, but would have been ancient Nubia, so kind of like the southern part of Egypt and the north part of what's currently Sudan. This was a country where the Nubians lived, and they were ruled by a queen. And this was a guy who was an official in charge of the queen's treasury, and he was so interested in finding out about the God of the Jews that he made the 200-mile trip to Jerusalem, and Philip comes alongside of him, and he's reading from the Old Testament, trying to make sense of it. So, interestingly enough, the passage he's reading is Isaiah 53, which is an Old Testament passage that very clearly talks about the coming Messiah, Jesus. So the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Philip ran up to the chariot, heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And so Philip gets up in the chariot and starts talking to him about this passage that he has questions about. And they begin to talk, and Philip puts the conversation towards Jesus, and he explains to this man about Jesus. And the man is like, this is awesome. I'm in. So I'm going to follow Jesus. Can I get baptized? Sure. So Philip baptizing is pretty amazing. What's not obvious to us, since we're not Jewish, is that this guy would have been very clearly excluded from worship in Jerusalem. First of all, he's Ethiopian. You know, he's not a Jew. So he doesn't even get to go in the temple. But secondly, he's a eunuch. And in those days, oftentimes, uh, young boys were castrated and turned into eunuchs because they felt like then they could be trusted to work in proximity to the queen. And their motives would be pure. And they were entrusted to do these high-level government positions. Well, according to Levitical law, anybody like that couldn't get close to the temple. So this man, even though he had a huge heart for understanding who God was and what that would look like in his own life, he couldn't get near God in the temple. And he's disappointed and starts heading home. This is when Philip runs into him. And Philip didn't care about this. Even though he had two strikes against him spiritually, Philip just listens to what the Holy Spirit tells him to do, shares Christ, and this guy turns his life over to Jesus. So I want you to look at the, the summary slide because these are the four things that I told you we'd see in every one of these passages. The first point is that nobody is beyond the reach of grace. 
And Philip, even though he was just a normal, everyday Christian, he understood that Jesus' grace was for everybody. Not just religious people who grew up in the right country and were born into the right families, but for everybody. Even people who grew up in distant lands or whose parents might have made decisions about them that they had to live with the consequences of. Philip didn't care about that, and neither did God. No one is beyond the reach of grace. And God uses real people to do extraordinary things. Philip preaches to all of these towns in Samaria, so he's really good with large groups of people, but then one-on-one he just shares the truth about Jesus with this Ethiopian official and leads him to know Jesus. And here, faith plus obedience equals blessing. So Philip's learned to obey the Spirit of God. So when the Spirit says, I want you to go over to the chariot, Philip doesn't just like, okay, well, I'll, kinda, I'll head over there and see what happens. He runs to the chariot. See, he's ready to jump in. He's eager to know what God wants him to do. And then growth comes in spite of the opposition. This persecution, it scatters all of the disciples. That's terrible. It's awful. People died because of this persecution, but God uses it to bring growth and to spread the gospel into Samaria and even into Ethiopia, another place hundreds of miles away. So chapter 8 wraps up with this Ethiopian man heading home rejoicing, and Philip eventually ends up in Caesarea, which was the Roman capital of this area. So let's move on and take a look at Saul and Saul's story. Later on, much of the New Testament is written by a man named Paul. But at this stage of the game, his name is Saul. And he was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, which is modern-day Turkey. So he's from the Middle East, but not specifically in Israel. But he grows up the son of a Pharisee. And he's a Roman citizen. And he's well-educated. In fact, he's one of the most promising young Pharisees in Jerusalem. And he studied under a really well-known rabbi, named Gamaliel that Dean mentioned last week. This is the guy who said, look, we don't have to worry about this new thing going on with these followers of Jesus. If it's really of God, we can't stop it. But if it's nothing to worry about, it's going to fizzle out on its own. So let's just let God deal with it. So Gamaliel was the guy who taught Saul. And so Saul had great street credibility with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He was so zealous and devoted to the cause of Judaism and protecting his beloved faith from these rabble-rousers called Christians. He had the authority of the Jewish council behind him, and he wanted to go as far as Damascus, hundreds of miles away, to be able to stamp out Christianity before it really started picking up steam. So he heads towards Damascus. It's a trip of maybe 175 miles, almost a full week of traveling. And It had a large Jewish population there. There might have been 30 or 40 different synagogues there. So he was really concerned that we don't want this Christianity business to spread. And he's almost there on the road to Damascus. He's almost outside of town when he sees the light. In the middle of the daytime, this dazzling light shines, and it drives him to the ground. And he hears a voice saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul is confused. He's like, wait, wait, who am I talking to? And the voice says, this is Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now I want you to get up and go into the city and then I'll tell you what will happen. Think about how devastating this must have been for Saul at this point. I mean, his whole life, he's thought he's been following God, making God happy, doing what pleases God. And he realizes like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I thought you were dead. And now I'm having this incredible, fantastic 
encounter with Jesus who is talking to me, and he's telling me that I have been persecuting him. I thought I was just getting rid of these crazy people. Whoa, I have some serious thinking to do. So Saul gets up. He's helped to his feet by his companions. And even when he opens his eyes after the light has gone away, he can't see anything. And the people that are with him who are, are traveling with him, they have to lead him into town, and they take him to a place. And for three days, he fasts and prays. And in Jewish tradition, that would be a sign of repentance and mourning. And you get the impression that he's just trying to figure out, like, what have I been doing? How did I go so wrong? Now, this is actually a situation where God is working from two different directions to bring about a divine appointment. So he's appeared miraculously to Saul, but he's also ends up appearing to a man named Ananias. So again, follow along with me. This is out of Acts chapter 9. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision and said, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, where he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Well, Ananias is just another one of these normal Christian guys. We never would have heard about him in Scripture, except for the fact that God speaks to him. He has this fantastic vision with very specific instructions about Saul. And understandably, Ananias is not wildly enthusiastic about the assignment. It's like, um, God, I don't know if you've heard about this guy, but I have heard reports, and he's not somebody that Christians ought to be hanging out with. And God says, hey, I know what I'm doing. I need you to go pray for him, lay your hands on him, I've told him to expect you. So Ananias goes, and out of bold obedience, he shows compassion and encouragement to Saul. He says, brother Saul. And he puts his hands on him, and he prays for him. And when he prays, something like scales fall off of Paul's eyes, and he can hear. And immediately Saul is healed, and he gets up, and he goes and gets baptized, just like the Ethiopian man. He believes, and then he's baptized. And as Ananias is praying for him. He receives the Holy Spirit. And he's had this personal experience with Christ. Well, Saul stays in Damascus and gets some encouragement from the disciples there. But very quickly, he begins to talk about Jesus in the synagogue. Remember, he's a well-trained rabbi. He's a, a religious expert when it comes to Jewish law. And he begins to argue forcefully that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, that's very confusing to the people in the synagogues because they're thinking, wait a minute, aren't you the guy that was coming here to get rid of all the Christians? And now you're talking like one of them. What is going on? And in fact, it ends up in Damascus, there's a plot to kill Saul because he's stirring up so much trouble. Now, it's not clear when we read this section that there's time that passes. Dean talked about this last week that, you know, to us it just seems like, wow, all this stuff has happened just in a matter of weeks. It's actually very compressed. So somewhere along this stretch, Saul heads to Arabia for about three years. And he spends time getting to know God. Maybe he's preaching there. We don't have all the details. He tells us that later in, in Galatians. But he comes back to Damascus eventually and then ends up in Jerusalem 
trying to hang out with the disciples who even three years later are very skeptical because his reputation has preceded him. And in Jerusalem, there's also a plot to kill him. So that's the end of the story of Saul right now. But in a couple of chapters, we're going to come back and Saul uh, is going to like dominate the back half of the book of Acts because he just, God has a hold of his heart. And he's, uh, God has taken the most unlikely hero, a guy who has pledged, I'm going to stamp out Christianity. And, and it's just like God to say, like, oh, really? I actually have a different job for you. I want you to spread it. And so Saul is a great example that no one is beyond the reach of grace. Later on, Saul will say of himself, there can't be anybody who is a worse sinner than I am. If you line up all the sinners in the world, from worst to best, I mean, like I'm at the head of the line. I top the list. Well, if God's grace extends to a guy like that, then understand there's hope for people like us. God uses everyday Christians. He uses real people like Ananias. Not a Bible superhero, just a guy who understood that when God said, I want you to go, even though he wasn't crazy about the assignment, he knew he needed to obey. Think about if Ananias had said no to God. You know, he had faith, but let's say no obedience. He would have missed out completely on this incredible blessing that God had in store for him. Wouldn't have been easy for him. It wouldn't have been comfortable. God didn't promise him anything up front. I don't know if you noticed that. God just said, I want you to go and do this. So he had no guarantees, and yet he did it. He was willing to couple obedience with his faith. And then growth comes in spite of opposition. There are two plots to kill Saul in this one chapter, and yet God uses him in amazing ways to push the word of God out into many other lands. So God is not slowed down by the opposition. God uses it for good. There's a great summary statement at the end of Acts chapter 9. I'm going to read it for you. This is basically after this has all happened with Saul. But it summarizes sort of what's going on in the church. It says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. So we're not just talking about in Jerusalem. It's all over the region. It's enjoying a season of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Those are very similar terms that we've read earlier in the book of Acts, but this is in the face of opposition. So it's pretty clear to see that there is growth in spite of the opposition. So I, I want to take a pause here for just a second, and I want you to think about this, and think about your own experience with the Lord. Most of you in here, I would venture to guess, have had a personal relationship with Jesus. It might not have been this blinding light, Damascus Road kind of experience, but you could point to a time in your life where Jesus became real to you, and you made a commitment to him. Now, if that's not your experience, if you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, I would love for you to think about what it would look like for you to have that kind of experience with him. You know, maybe you're not a bad person like Saul. You're not trying to stamp out Christianity, but the Bible says every one of us needs to turn and follow Jesus, that none of us could ever be good enough or smart enough or, or know enough spiritual stuff that we could earn our way into heaven. Every one of us is messed up, and every one of us needs a personal relationship with him. We need his forgiveness and his grace in our life. So I want you to think about this. Have you had that kind of experience with Christ where you could point to it and say, yeah, yeah, you know, I made that decision. I'm one of his. If not, that's something that you really want to think about. If you have had that experience, then 
I want you to think about how you could share it with somebody else. What would it be like for you to tell your story? Could you do that in 30 seconds, 45 seconds? Because over and over again, Saul tells his story to people. And God uses that story of his conversion, of the way that he met Jesus, and it helps other people come and follow Jesus. I wonder for us, how responsive are we to the Holy Spirit? You know, when he taps us on the shoulder, when he prompts us and stirs our heart, and when he kicks us in the rear end and says, hey, I want you to go talk to that person. Are we like Ananias where it's like, oh, I don't know, God, have you heard their language? And, you know, I've seen how much they drink at the company parties. I don't think they, you know. But are we willing to obey? And when God says, hey, I, I just need you to go up there and talk to him. I want you to find out what's going on with him. Are we willing to follow his direction? Do we ever think about the fact that God may have divine appointments set up for us? And we may think, oh, wait, he, is he telling me? I'm not sure. Does, does he want me to go talk to that person? Maybe he's already been working on that person's heart. And they need us to show up and speak into their life. I worry that sometimes when we're so busy and we have so much, speaking personally, so much background noise and so much on our to-do list that we're not actively listening for the Holy Spirit. We're not looking for opportunities for him to steer us toward anybody in need. So I want to pray for us that we would get better at being like Ananias. So bow your heads. Lord, I, I may be just taking my own experience and my own struggles and, and extrapolating them out to everybody that's here, but I suspect that most of us here would struggle if you gave us an assignment like Ananias. And even in the little things, when you put opportunities in front of us and you prompt us to, to speak up to someone, we, we may be hesitant. So I pray that you'd help us to hear your voice more clearly and help us to look for the divine appointments that you've set before us and help us to be willing to obey you when you point us in the right direction. I pray that you'd help us to be more bold about sharing our faith and helping others to find you. And if there's anyone here this morning who really can't think of a time when they've made a decision to follow you, maybe they're still trying to figure all of this out. I pray that you'd be so real to them. I pray that you'd help them to understand how much you love them and how amazing your grace is that it extends to them, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. It is an abundant life that goes on forever. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've got one more person that we need to talk about this morning, and that is Peter. So Peter, remember, is the, the same guy that we start Acts with. You know, he's the guy with the big mouth that followed Jesus. He's the one that put his foot in that big mouth quite often. But he's emerging as one of the key leaders in the early church. And earlier in the chapter, he and John venture into Samaria to see what all the commotion is that Philip is stirring up. That's kind of a big deal for him. And then a little later, he visits a Gentile town about 25 miles from Jerusalem called Leda. And again, you know, this is becoming a little more common for Peter. He's like getting out and into these areas where a good Jew wouldn't be found. But he's getting a little more bold and kind of, it seems like these are early steps in his progression of understanding how God loves everybody, not just the Jews. And so he goes to this town of Leda. He heals a crippled man just like he healed a crippled man in Jerusalem. 
early in the book of Acts. And as Annius is healed, people in town see this, and a lot of them decide to follow Jesus. And then not only there, but in the surrounding area, people begin to follow Jesus. And then in Joppa, on the coast, uh, about 10 miles down the road, Peter goes. You may recognize that name. It's from where Jonah is trying to escape from God. He doesn't want his assignment, and he goes to Joppa and jumps on a boat to try to get away from God's plan for his life. And this is where Peter is. He's heading in that direction when a woman named Tabitha passes away. And Tabitha is this awesome woman who's been an incredible blessing to the church there in Joppa. And when she dies, they go ahead and prepare her body for burial. And people are mourning and coming to visit, and they're all sad. And some of the church leaders say, hey, hey, Peter, you're just down the road. Would you come? We, we have no idea what to do. I mean, this is just... Gosh, you know, is there anything you can do? Can you help us? What do we do here? And so Peter shows up, and it's really pretty amazing because we don't have any record of any of the disciples raising anyone from the dead prior to this. So this just seems like Peter being bold in his faith, following Jesus' example, and he raises Tabba from the dead. And it's amazing. It's fantastic. It's miraculous. It's something that we can't explain from 2,000 years later, except for the power of God. And so understand, though, this is Peter doing what Jesus did, and not just in Jerusalem around God's chosen people. He's doing this among Gentiles, people who are far from God, people who have no spiritual background. Now, interestingly, there's a little phrase in verse 43 of uh, this chapter that's easy for us to overlook. It says that Peter stayed at the home of a tanner somebody who was a leather worker, and the guy's name was Simon. Now, understand that touching a dead animal carcass, according to Jewish law, would make someone unclean. And if you were a good Jew, you would stay away from that person until they had gone through this ritual purification and a ceremonial cleansing in a period of time. And here Peter is, he's not only been traveling around Samaria, he's not only been hanging out with Gentiles, now he's staying in the same house as a guy who touches dead animals. We don't know if Peter was kind of aware that God was sort of taking him down the road in this direction. But in retrospect, it's pretty easy to see. So Peter, this particular day, is, goes up on top of the house. He's hungry. It's midday. A good Jew would pray at midday. He's hungry. He's just trying to connect with God. Meantime, we've got another one of these two-way situations where God is going to talk to Peter, but he's also talking to a man named Cornelius, who's in another town. So Cornelius is a guy that comes up in the beginning of chapter 10. He lives in Caesarea, which is about 65 miles from Jerusalem, and it's the Roman capital of this province of Judea. And he's a Roman soldier. He's a centurion, so he's in charge of 100 men, and he's in a group, a battalion of about 600 men. And Roman soldiers weren't typically very popular in the lands that they conquered for obvious reasons. They didn't generally strike up friendships with the people that, whose land they were occupying and dominating. But Cornelius had this great reputation because he prayed often, and he was kind to the poor, and he was a, a God-fearer, kind of like this Ethiopian official, couldn't worship in the temple because he was a Roman, wasn't Jewish, but he was very interested in God, very sincere, very generous, And yet he knew there had to be something more than just being religious and and trying to be a good man. So God sends an angel to Cornelius 
which is a pretty remarkable reminder that God's grace is for everyone, even Roman soldiers. And the angel says, hey, God's noticed your prayers and your kindness and your generosity. So send some of your men to the town of Joppa and ask for a guy named Peter who's staying at the house of a tanner named Simon and get him to come back here and get him to talk to you. So Cornelius hears that, wakes up, and obeys, and he sends a couple of servants to go to the next town, Joppa, find this guy, bring him back. He obeys quickly. When our kids were little, I don't know how we stumbled upon this, but you know there were times when we tell our children, hey, you need to eat your vegetables. And we could see the little wheels turning in their head, and they were like, hmm, I wonder what would happen if I don't eat the vegetables. I wonder if I just sit here and look at them, if mom and dad will you know, forget about it. You, know? or, you need to clean up your room. It's like, hmm, what else would I rather do? And so occasionally we would say to the kids, you need to obey quickly. I was kind of like, there, there are times when you're going to have to think about this stuff and, you know, you may want to discuss it or whatever. This is not one of those times. You just need to obey quickly. And it was kind of let them know, uh, hey, this is serious. This is important. We're in business. And I don't know if Cornelius's mom and dad did that for him, but, you know, he just he obeyed quickly. God told him what to do, and he did it, and with zero hesitation. Meanwhile... Peter's in Joppa. He's on the roof. He goes up there with the intention of praying. He's kind of hungry, and he falls asleep. I, I can kind of relate to that. You know, he's waiting for lunch, and God gives him this really bizarre dream. In his dream, the heavens open up, and this sheet comes down. I'm thinking it's kind of like a picnic tablecloth, you know, and on it are all kinds of animals that he could eat. Now, they're still alive, so I don't know. They're like, you know, pigs running around and saying, bacon, bacon, bacon. And, and he's looking at it, and a voice from heaven says, hey, Peter, go, and you can kill any of this stuff and eat it. And Peter's like, oh, no, no, I would never do that. I have always been pure in my following of the Jewish food laws, and I would never, you know, never would I do that. And the voice does it again, and, and a third time. And the voice says, you know, Peter, you can't say this stuff is unclean if God made it clean. You've got to adjust your attitude. Well, this is terribly confusing to Peter. It's interesting. Peter, you know, denies Jesus three times. Jesus tells him, feed my sheep three times. And now he has this dream, and he's again getting into an argument with God. Like, no, no, I don't want to do what God says. Three times, he's still struggling with it, trying to figure out what the dream means when there's a knock on the door. And the guys who have been sent by Cornelius show up, and they're saying, hey, is, is there a guy named Peter here? And then, in this case, the Holy Spirit says to Peter, hey, I need you to go downstairs. There's some guys looking for you, and I want you to go with them. I sent them to you, and you just need to do whatever they say. So Peter's like, okay. I'm thinking he's still pretty hungry. Doesn't know what this dream means. He goes downstairs, and here are these men that Cornelius have sent, and they say, you know, our boss, Cornelius, he had this crazy dream, and he sent us to come get you and to bring you back with us to Caesarea. And Peter is like, okay, sounds good. Why don't you guys come in, spend the night? It's going to take us a couple days to get there. Let's get a fresh start. So, again, it's really weird because any good Jew would never invite Gentiles into his home. I don't know if maybe he's thinking, well, Simon actually owns the place. He's a tanner. It's already a really, you know, impure Jewish place anyway. So, no problem. We'll let him come in. But he shows surprising hospitality. The next morning, he heads for Caesarea with them. They get there a couple of days later along with a group of guys that Peter has asked to go with him. These are believers from Joppa. And when he gets there, 
Cornelius meets him outside and just falls down worshiping. And Peter's like, no, no, come on. I'm just a guy. Stand up. You know, this is not appropriate. I'm just a servant of God. And so Cornelius is so excited to see him, takes him in his house, and the house is full of people. Cornelius has invited all of his family and his friends and his neighbors to hear whatever it is that Peter's going to say to them. And they've been waiting anxiously. I don't know if it's been three days, four days, but he's got all these people jammed in his house because he knows that if I obey what God does, he's going to bless me. My faith plus obedience, that's going to lead to blessing. And so Peter comes in the house and kind of begins by clarifying. He's like, hey, you guys know, because I'm a Jew, I really shouldn't be caught dead here. I mean, this is way out of the bounds of Jewish law, but I now understand the dream that I had wasn't just about food. I think it was about God and that God has shown me I can't consider any person impure or unclean because everybody matters to God. So that's why I came here. But, you know, why did you ask me here? And Cornelius says, well, look, just tell us whatever the Lord has put on your heart. That's what we want to hear. And so Cornelius begins to listen, and everybody is listening to Peter. And I want to read this passage to you because this is such a clear presentation of the truth about Jesus. And it's a very short sermon. I probably should have just read this to you, and we could have been done a half an hour ago. But this is out of Acts chapter 10. Peter begins to speak, and he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message that God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all. And you know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John the Baptist preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went out doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. And we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. Well, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he's the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. And all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. I'm going to read that last verse one more time. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Everybody that confesses his name, everybody that puts their trust in him, anybody from anywhere, they receive forgiveness. Well, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. This is amazing. This parallels Acts chapter 2 where, you know, the believers are together and they're in Jerusalem in the upper room and the Holy Spirit comes and crazy stuff happens. They start speaking in tongues. And then in Acts chapter 8, the Holy Spirit comes on the Samaritans, the people that were like half-breed spiritually. And now in Acts chapter 10, the Holy Spirit comes on the Gentiles the same exact way that it happened at Pentecost for the Jews. And I'm sure in his head, Peter's going like, whoa, 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 this is a little much, God. Can we slow it down? I'm not ready for this. But it's crazy because these Gentiles now have received the Holy Spirit. And it's an amazing day. People turn their lives over to Christ and begin following him. Well, not surprisingly, kind of the epilogue here is that Peter heads back to Jew, and they're already criticizing before he gets back. You know, like, you had dinner with who? You shared what? You gave them the Holy Spirit? Do you not understand? These are Gentiles. You can't do that stuff. And so Peter explains everything that happened and walks them through that. And at the end, in a surprisingly short time, the church leaders are okay with this radical shakeup in the plans they had. 
because they had no idea that God's grace was going to extend to the Samaritans and the Gentiles. And yet, that was God's plan from the very beginning. You know, even Jesus talked with the Samaritan woman at the well. Even Jesus shared with Gentiles and served a Roman centurion who was very far from God. So, even in this situation, we see that no one is beyond the reach of grace. Not even Cornelius, a Roman soldier. Not even his family or his servants. And God uses real people. Now, we think of Peter as like this, you know, biblical rock star. I mean, like, wow! He was, like, raising people from the dead and all of that. Peter was an epic failure. Seriously, he was. And I think he realized that he was slow sometimes when it came to listening and obeying God. But if God can use an epic failure like Peter, then he can use an epic failure like me. No problem. And faith plus obedience equals blessing. I mean, just think about for both Cornelius and Peter, they were challenged to put their faith into action in ways that they probably were very uncomfortable with. But they obeyed God, and because of that, they were blessed. And again, growth comes in spite of opposition in spite of all the criticism that Peter got, in spite of all of the awkwardness and breaking the Jewish taboos, man, lives were changed and the kingdom of God expanded. So I want us to take a minute. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up, and in a minute they're going to play and we're going to sing a song. But before that, I'm going to pray for us, and then I want you to spend a couple of minutes just hopefully talking to God, listening to God. And I want you to think about these four areas because it occurs to me that there may be some areas, one of these maybe, where God wants to do some work in your life. Maybe it's in, you know, the people that you look at and you see and you think that like, oh, yeah, I, I'm not even going to bother talking to them because they are so far from God's grace. They are so closed off to it. Like, you know, people like that, people that look like that, people who act like that, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, God's grace is for everybody. Maybe it's you that are sitting here thinking like, whoa, yeah, but you don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. I don't really care. Neither does God. Because his grace is for every person. And God uses real people. You know, people like us. People who are screwed up, failures, losers, strugglers. If we'll let him. I don't know, maybe there's an area of obedience where you've been dragging your feet. It's like, I don't know if I can do that, God. And you just need to get over it and say, okay, I'm going to do it. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but I'm going to do it. And then, you know, right now in America, there's not a whole lot of opposition to the church. There's some. may not be a whole lot of opposition to you as a believer at work or among your neighbors, but every once in a while people will say things or they'll make a joke at your expense or they'll make a comment that you know, makes it apparent that, okay, maybe they are not as supportive of my spiritual choices. But whether it's opposition or hardship or obstacles in your path, God wants you to grow. And if instead of seeing that thing as something that puts distance between you and God, if you'll turn to God, He's going to bless you and He's going to grow you. So I want you to spend some time just seeing if there's one of these areas where God wants to have a conversation with you starting this morning, but maybe continuing on into the week. So let's pray, and then you talk to God, and then we'll sing. Lord, thank you so much that your grace extends to everyone. There are a lot of people who have no idea about your grace. They they don't have any idea how much you love them. 
And it feels like you want to use us to spread the word. So I, I thank you for the example that you've given us in these men in the book of Acts who, who followed you and struggled, but they obey. And I pray that you would help us to really take to heart the lessons that you've shown us this morning. Help us to see if there are areas where we need to yield to you, where we need to do some homework or some thinking or some where we need to, to have you at work in our heart. We give these next couple of minutes to you.